If you have your Bibles, Ruth chapter 4, if you'll join me there, we conclude our study through the book of Ruth this evening. Ruth has been this beautiful narrative of a a love story uh, that portrays for us a a picture of redemption, not only just in the natural sense of what would take place in the history of Israel at that time, but of course it's this uh, beautiful typology we've seen as well of how Jesus redeems us and how Boaz becomes this beautiful image and picture of Jesus, Ruth, a picture of you and I, and even as he fell in love with her and she submitted herself to him uh, as the result of that relationship, there's redemption, there's restoration, there's, if you would, salvation provided as a result of that. Now, as we left off last time at the end of chapter 3, as we've been kind of watching this uh, love narrative, uh, Naomi encouraged, that is the mother-in-law of Ruth, uh, Naomi encouraged Ruth to go and to make it known to Boaz uh, that she desired really to be married to him, to basically go and as an act of humble submission to present herself to Boaz to indicate that she desired uh, that he would take her to himself in a marital relationship that on top of that that recognizing sovereignly God had made the two that had fallen in love a perfect design where he could be a goel or this kinsman redeemer this close blood relative that we talked about that could not only just marry her and bring her marital happiness but as well was able to preserve the family line to restore the land that was lost through the rights uh, of what a kinsman redeemer could do in that day in Israel. And remember, it tells us in chapter 3 that she went to Boaz, and it says that she basically presented herself, she positioned herself at the feet of Boaz, saying to him in chapter 3, verse 9, Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close Relative. The idea, again, is of a, a kinsman, someone who is a close blood relative that not only can marry me, but also can redeem back for us everything that this family that I'm now a part of has lost. And as she says in this language, take me under your wing. Again, it's a Hebrew euphemism. It's a way of saying, I I want to come under your covering. It's a way of her speaking about how she wanted to come under the covering, the authority of this man merrily, where he could be her protection, her provider, the one who would provide oversight and leadership for her life in a marital relationship and that he would take her under his wing to care for her and nurture her in that way. Uh, And she's basically saying, listen, I'm bowing at your feet. I'm presenting myself. I want to enter into a relationship with you. Would you take me into a relationship and do this for me? And again, this is a beautiful picture of what ultimately we would hopefully come to a place to one time where we would come to the feet of our Boaz to Jesus and we would initiate uh, to Jesus understanding his love for us that we willingly want him to take us into a relationship with him the Bible portrays the relationship between Christ and his church as a marriage uh, and that we become the bride of Christ and that at some point understanding Jesus' love and having a desire to want to be with him, knowing who he is, understanding and coming to a realization of who Jesus is as the Redeemer, as the Savior and seeing his love for us and the incredible grace that he wants to show us that we're drawn by the cords of love and that we come to the feet of Jesus and say to Jesus, Jesus, uh, here I am. 
uh, take me, make me your bride, make me your wife, marry me, give to me everything that I can't supply and provide for myself. And so she comes presenting herself to Boaz. And let's just for sake of acquaintance as we go into chapter four, reread some of kind of then what happens in our narrative, especially if you weren't here with us last time. In chapter three, verse 10, he then responded to her saying, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you've shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning in that you did not go after the young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, he told her, I will do for you all that you request. That is not only to marry her, but also to serve in this function as the kinsman to restore back the land, the property the family lost, to raise up an heir for the family because she was a widow and there was no son raised up in this family line. He says, I'll do for you all that you request. I want to marry you, Ruth, no question, he says. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. And it is true, he says, verse 12, that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. In other words, there's someone else who has the first right of redemption that is a closer blood relative and Ruth and Boaz had to now confront this issue that they needed to wait upon the Lord to see if it truly was God's design for them to be together because it could be that this other relative wanted to exercise his right of the Leverite marriage to take Ruth as a wife and also to be the one to serve as the kinsman. So he says to her, verse 13, stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform that duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So again, you see this implication, not only does he love her, but he wants to perform this, he mentions duty, this obligation that was in something that was kind of impressed upon the family members of the people of Israel in that time. Again, we talked about Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25, some of these passages that talk about this. Leviticus 25 tells us if one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold a piece of their land, their possession of the allotment of land God gave them, the redeeming relative can come and redeem it that he may redeem what his brother has sold. And this is part of what he's talking about. We'll see. To redeem back that property. The second thing he's inferring when he says, I'll perform this duty if the other blood relative, the closer kinsman, does not want to perform the duty is what we refer to as the, the leveret marriage. Or Deuteronomy 25 refers to it by saying, if two brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, so a man dies being married before raising up a son who can be his heir to his possession, his land allotment, it says, then the widow of that dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside of the family. Her husband's brother, the closest blood relative living, shall go into her, take her as a wife and perform, listen, the duty, there's our word, of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears out of that new marriage, will succeed the name of the dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So again, this is the idea of this duty as well, that it was the obligation of the kinsman to marry the widow of your brother or your close relative who had died without raising up a son. And the first child you conceived, the first son, was to carry the name 
of the widow's dead husband so that his family line was preserved so that the land allotment and the inheritance remained within the family and that family name was not blotted out of the nation of Israel. So this is what's being inferred and he says, but there's someone else closer and we need to see in the morning if he wants to exercise this right of this duty first. If not, he says, Ruth, you know that I'm in love with you. I will perform the duty as the Lord lives lie down and wait till the morning and we'll address this situation. He didn't want her wandering off in the dark in the lack of safety in the dark of night. So she laid his feet until the morning. Again, we talked honoring the purity among them. She arose before no one uh, could recognize her. And he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, notice guarding her reputation, not only preserving her purity, but he doesn't want anyone casting uh, wrong accusations. Oh, I saw Ruth sneaking away from the barley hill there at the threshing floor. He says, look, let her go early before daylight comes. And he tells the other men, as we said, this wasn't a private thing. There's other people sleeping around the same pile of grain around the threshing floor. And he says, look, do not anyone say that she was here because I don't want anyone to falsely accuse or tarnish this young woman's testimony. Uh, and so she now leaves knowing that she has to wait to see what's going to happen. It's kind of the cliffhanger. She goes home, tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, what transpired, bringing home the deposit of all this barley, which was an indication of Boaz saying to her and to her mother-in-law, look, there's the down payment, the deposit. I'm earnest. I'm sincere. I want to fulfill this relationship commitment that I'm saying. And we saw the final words of Naomi in chapter 3, verse 18 to Ruth. As she has to wait this out, she told her, we left off with this, sit still, chapter 3, verse 18, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest, she says, until he's concluded the matter this day. So they're kind of left with a cliffhanger. They don't know if this near relative is going to want to marry Ruth, if he's going to want to serve as the kinsman and redeem the property back. If so, they would have to submit themselves sovereignly, the will of the Lord be done, uh, and allow God to just exercise his sovereign will in the situation. But the good, wise counsel of Naomi, this older woman to this younger woman, she says, just be patient, sit still. Don't push, don't pressure, don't, don't try and manipulate the situation and make it go the way you, it's just, it's just sit still. And that's an act of faith. Sometimes that's what it takes. The Bible says, just be still and know that I'm God. And sometimes that's something that's necessary because we want to put our hand in or fix it or tweak it or make it happen. Or, and, and we have this capacity as human beings, don't we, where we can kind of somehow, even very subtle ways, kind of tweak or work or do certain things to kind of make things go the way we ultimately want them to go. And sometimes we have to just take our hands off and say, the Lord says, just be still. Just be still. Just, I'm God. I'm God. Just, just see how the matter unfolds and, and don't overreact or don't try and put. And so she's cautioned here by her mother-in-law. Just, just let him handle it. Let him be a man. Let him take the leadership role. See how the matter will turn out. Let him lead in the situation. She says, look, this man loves you. I guarantee you, she says, he won't rest until it's done with this day. He's not going to delay. He's in love with you, Ruth. He's going to work on your behalf and see what happens in relation to this. And again, same thing with Jesus. He loves us. We can always know that he's going to work on our behalf 
and we can just at times sit still in faith and just let the Lord be who he's supposed to be, our leader, our Lord, and see how a matter is going to turn out. And our Boaz Jesus doesn't rest until he's concluded the matters that concern our lives as well. So chapter 4, verse 1, we pick up the cliffhanger. Now Boaz went up to the gate. The idea is that very next morning. He went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Hmm, wonder if that was a coincidence. But notice, what does Boaz do? It says Boaz goes up to the gate. Now, in ancient times, and we've talked about this before, the gate of a city was basically like what we today in modern understanding would kind of call like city hall. The gate of the city was where the elders assembled, where the leaders assembled, and this was where court proceedings would take place. This is where they would strategize for battles if there were military issues that had to be taken care of. This is where the leaders, the men of reputation, the men of wisdom, the elders of the land would assemble together at the gate of the city and people would come with their issues and matters and they would listen and they'd give advice and counsel and they would solve problems. And so it's kind of like the, the, the ancient form of a city hall. It's where you'd arrange contracts and things of this nature. So this is why Boaz now goes up to the gate of the city he he plants himself there and again interestingly enough that close relative whom Boaz had spoken came by now again coincidence I don't think so God's providence absolutely and this close relative who you refer to that is the nearest relative that could exercise this right of marrying Ruth and being the kinsman comes by so Boaz calls out to him and says come aside friend Sit down here, have a seat. He says, wants to talk about something. So he came aside and sat down. And he took 10 men, notice, of the elders of the city and also asked them to sit down. So they sat down as well. Now, what he's doing there by, by bringing 10 men of the elders of the city to the gate and asking everybody to sit down is he wants to, to work through a contractual arrangement. Now, in that day, not everyone read and wrote. Uh, not everyone had you know, paper and pen. So the way that they made contracts a lot of times were verbally. So the purpose of the 10 men is to witness the contractual arrangement that's going on. The way that you signed and made contracts was you discussed things and you came to an agreement in the presence of witnesses. The Bible says by the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be established. So this is so Boaz wants to I don't want two and three. I want 10 people. <laughs> to witness, to pay attention. I want lots of witnesses here. What's going on? Because he wants to make sure this deal is solidified and everyone knows and there's no question. So he invites them over to sit down and then he begins to discuss the matter at hand and the proposal. Verse three, he said then to this close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Again, remember Elimelech was Naomi's husband who had died in Moab. And Naomi comes back with the widow, with Ruth as her daughter-in-law, who also was married to one of her sons who had died as well. And he reminds them that Naomi, who's now come back, at some point, her family had to sell the piece of land as the result of their poverty and the hard times they fell into. Remember, there was a famine in the land. That was why they left. So he's bringing to the attention someone among our family, our brother Elimelech, the family they were both in. Naomi had to sell that piece of property. 
And I thought, verse 4, he says to the relative, to inform you, to make sure that you were aware, saying, buy it back, redeem it, the idea is, in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of the people. Notice, if you will redeem it, notice there must be a willingness, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And whenever we read the word redeem, understand the simple definition. The word redeem means to set free by paying a price. So we read in the Bible different aspects of redeeming and redemption. That's what redemption or redeem means. It means to pay a price to then set something or set someone free. So this land had transitioned into the hands of someone else. But God wanted it to remain within the family. So there was always this way that God had prescribed that the land could be redeemed or purchased back. You had to pay a price. So if a relative who was able to be a kinsman had the resources to do it and the willingness, they could pay the redemption price and redeem it back for their family by buying the land themselves. And then therefore it was now back within the overall, even though extended family, what they did with it once they took it back in the extended family, that was their discretion, but at least it was back within the family allotment that God had originally put it in when he portioned out the land under Joshua in those days. So he says, look, here's the opportunity. If you want to buy back this land, he says, in the presence of these elders now, he says, if you'll redeem it, then redeem it. You have the resources. Are you interested? Would you like to purchase the property to redeem it back for our family, Naomi, who's still alive, and Elimelech, her husband, who it once belonged to, who had to sell it off? He says, if not, please let me know, because I'm next in line after you. You're the only one in front of me. And if you're not interested, the idea here is right of first refusal. If you're not interested, I am interested and I'd be glad to purchase the property, but rightfully you have the first opportunity as the closer relative. Well, he, hearing that opportunity, verse 4, pretty emphatically and quickly just said, I will redeem it. In other words, here's what he's thinking. He's just a typical businessman. He's thinking, this, this, this is a surefire, a good opportunity. A good piece of land for a price that I can afford there's no real strings or obligations attached to it. I can enlarge my property, my inheritance. And Naomi, who he is only thinking about at this point, because that's the only thing Boaz has brought up. Boaz is very strategic in the way that he presents this. He's thinking of Naomi. Okay, she's elderly at this point. She's beyond the age of what? Childbearing. So he's thinking, I can buy the land. Naomi's older now. She's beyond the age of childbearing. So that attachment of the Leverite marriage thing, that's not going to apply. Everyone knows that because she's beyond the age of being able to bear a child. So I'm not going to have to marry Naomi too with the land and raise up an heir like the Leverite marriage would put the obligation to do because Naomi's beyond the age to bear children. So perfect. I get a good deal on a good piece of land. What businessman's going to turn down that real estate transaction? So he says, hey, I'm interested. I'll redeem it. I'm sure at that point, if Ruth or Naomi were anywhere around, their hearts sank at that moment. Or anybody who knew maybe a little love thing that started to happen that watched Ruth and Boaz falling in love thought, oh, no, it's all, oh, it's all falling apart now. And, 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 and maybe even Boaz a little bit was maybe thinking, mm, his heart kind of sank. But Boaz also knew what he was doing. He was a very wise man. 
And the way he handled his affairs were very, very wise. And again, as we've talked about this from a love and looking for the right kind of man or woman, if you're a Ruth or a Boaz, again, notice, ladies, that this is the kind of man you want. You want a man who handles his affairs wisely. He presents this situation very wisely, and that's why he ends up winning the gal and doing well for the whole family in the end. Look for a man that's got good judgment. One of the ways you can tell when you're looking for your Boaz, what's his judgment like? How does he handle his affairs? Because I tell you this, if you marry him, now he's handling your affairs. And if he's not handling his own affairs widely and he don't know how to lead his own life, you are cuckoo machu if you think he's going to do a good job leading you. So pay attention. You want someone who's wise, who's going to listen to the Lord, that knows how to lead already, and you see, hey, they can lead their own life well. They use wisdom. They have good judgment in the way they make decisions and how they handle things just as an individual because if you're going to let them take you under their covering and entrust yourself to them, which is part of what the marital role is for, between a man and a woman, then, then you want to make sure that you're entrusting yourself to the covering of someone who's a good decision maker. Because if not, you're putting yourself in jeopardy in certain ways. So Boaz presents this deal. He's very interested. He thinks, just land. Hey, Naomi's too old. I don't have to marry her, raise up the heir. But verse 5, then Boaz brings the second half of the deal. He was strategic in the way he went. So Boaz said, well, since you're interested, there is this one clause that goes along with it. On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead. This other daughter has now come into the family because she married one of Naomi's sons who had died. And she's also a widow without a family heir who's young enough to still raise up children on behalf of the family. So he says, you're also going to have to marry Ruth to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Again, the idea is the obligation of the Leverite marriage here where he is the close relative. If he wants the land, Ruth goes along with the land because she's a young enough widow within the family and there's no heir and she's still able to raise up an heir. So it would mean marrying Ruth. Now, number one, he's not in love with Ruth. And number two, he apparently was more concerned about his own interests because look at the quick change of mind, verse Six, the close relative said, uh, on second thought, I cannot redeem it. My account's looking a little bit low, he says. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. He then defers to Boaz, you redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So at this point, he pulls his hand back. As I said, he's not in love with Ruth. Boaz is. And he also apparently wants to preserve and protect his own inheritance because he realizes if I take Ruth to myself as a wife, he apparently seems to already be married and have children because he says my own inheritance, I'll tarnish, he says, I'll, I'll ruin my own inheritance. The idea is that if he raises up a son, that son now becomes another part of one who will inherit his ultimate allotment he realizes well now everything i have not just that portion of land that i'll inherit but everything that's a part of my inheritance i have to give a portion of that now to this son which then interferes with what i can give to my other sons and to the other heirs of my family so he says you know what not that interested in the land uh, and they were allowed to do this there was if you were not interested the scripture gave an allowance you did not have to exercise 
this duty you could defer and choose not to. So he pulls back. He says to Boaz, you know what? I'm on second thought, I'm not interested. You redeem the right of redemption for yourself since you are interested. I'm sure Boaz went right on. You know, just I hook line. Man, I presented that good. I'm glad I paid attention in business class. You know, he just presented it in the right way and he gets the gal now and the lamb. Verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel, redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal. This was how they sealed a contract. You took off a sandal and you gave it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. Now, now this idea of taking off a sandal and giving it to someone, we even see this in the scriptures in regards to the Leverite marriage, in regards to if you chose to defer and not marry the dead uh, or the the widow of your dead relative, she w- you would take off your shoe, you would hand it to her, and she would actually spit in your face uh, as, as a process. It's in the Bible, really. You're kind of looking at me freaked out. If you're here in Deuteronomy, we did read that, I promise you. It didn't make that up. Uh, and the idea, again, was that this was a way of shaming them for being more interested in their own self-interest rather than helping the family and making the sacrifice to do what was in the best interest of the welfare of a widow who was misfortuned and to help out the family. But listen, uh, in some cases, I might say spit in my face, baby. Uh, you know what I mean? I just, I'm sure that was the occasion at times where they thought to themselves, I... I spit away I just I don't want to enter into this I don't want to get married and I've said before I guarantee because of that families were very interested in keeping each other accountable and who they were marrying at times because you knew when your older sibling was dating this person about to marry them if they die guess what's going to fall on me guess what's going to be expected of me so I think in some ways it was probably a really good thing because they probably really kept each other accountable. Like, look, I don't know if that's the right person for you to marry. And so I have a vested interest here and uh, accountability really matters to me. This isn't the right one for you because they knew this would happen. Well, this seems to be somewhat of a formality of how they would orchestrate their contract. So he takes off the shoe as a way of verifying. And it seems maybe this could kind of be of like, like I, I don't want to walk in your shoes, kind of, it could be that type of a thing here where they take off the sandal as a way of sealing the deal. And therefore, verse 8, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day, he says, that I have bought all that was Elimelech's. And all that was Chilion's and Malon's, those were his two sons. One of them, remember, was the husband of Ruth who had died. From the hand of Naomi, verse 10, Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. So Boaz wants to make sure that everybody is very clear. Listen, I'm paying the price. I'm willing to buy the land. And he says, and I want this gal for my wife. I'm paying the price and acquiring her for, for my wife. He says, I bought all that was involved. The idea again there is, is it did not matter what the price was. He was willing to pay the price because she was the thing that was worth more than anything. He wasn't half as interested in the field as he was in the bride. You know, it's interesting. The first individual, all he's concerned about is the field, but he doesn't want anything to do with the bride. And sadly, sometimes 
there are people like that, even among the body of Christ. They're very interested in the field. They like the fields of service and this field, but they don't really care about the bride. They just like the opportunity to work and serve and do things in the field, but they don't really care about the bride. Elimelech, or excuse me, Boaz, he loved the bride. That was what he was, he loved the bride. And the field was, hey, that's just, that's just an extra thing. If, if, if I inherit a field with the process, great, that's, that's just an extra perk, but he loved the bride. And that's the heart that Jesus had. Jesus loves the bride more than anything else. Jesus isn't concerned about all the other peripheral things of Christianity. We often think that he's concerned. Jesus loves the bride. That's what he loves more than anything else. And for you and I as his representatives, that should be our greatest love. Our greatest love should be the bride, the body of Christ. Yes, there are fields of service and this opportunity and that opportunity, but loving the bride of Christ, that should be the thing that matters most. And here Boaz says, I don't care what the price is. He says, I'm willing to pay it. I bought all that was theirs, he says, and I want you to know, he says, I have therefore acquired her as my wife. This was his pride and joy that he was getting the love of his life, Ruth. Verse 11, and all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. There's the stamp of the contract has been signified we're all witnesses to what's happened here this day the lord they then say is kind of pronouncing a blessing the lord make the woman who is coming to your house like rachel and leah the mothers of the 12 sons of the nation of israel may they be like he says the rachel and leah the two who built the house of israel and may you prosper. The idea is pronouncing that they would be prolific in the Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now that's a story from Genesis chapter 38, unusual, but the implication there is Perez was the father of the Bethlehemites in Judah. So again, just sort of another pronunciation of a blessing of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman pronouncing God's blessing on this marital relationship verse 13 so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and when he went into her notice verse 13 the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son again notice the marriage relationship first as the result of that God blesses the marital union God gives conception and again we should take note verse 13 it's the Lord who grants conception it's the Lord who gives the divine enablement and gifting to conceive and to bear a child the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son and when we understand that the Lord is the one who gives and allows conception that should also give us a sense of the sanctity of life to realize that the Lord is the one who gives life as he did to them so here now this is this is the culmination the result the offspring the fruit of this marriage relationship which will now be the way that the name is perpetuated the family is saved and preserved all these kind of things that went together with the kinsman redeemer process that would happen so this brings great joy and it's interesting the book closes with tremendous joy it's interesting our study in Ruth opens with three funerals remember Elimelech and Malon and Chilion three deaths three funerals weeping and hopelessness and how does it culminate 85 verses later it culminates with a wedding 
and incredible joy and the birth of a child and the result of a relationship coming together and the offspring of that relationship just like you and I coming and marrying Christ and the result the fruit of what comes into our lives spiritually the offspring of that relationship of you and I with Jesus and what it produces the beautiful things it does in our lives to restore and to redeem and to give back joy verse 14 then the women said to Naomi blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative again the idea of the kinsman and may his name that is Boaz the kinsman may his name be famous in Israel I think that's beautiful he's not left you without a kinsman redeemer and because he's a kinsman redeemer they say not only blessed be the Lord but may this kinsman redeemer's name be famous in Israel Boy, how beautiful is that to think from the perspective of Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. May the name of Jesus not only be blessed, but become famous. Not only in all Israel, but in all our land, that the name of Jesus would be lifted up and glorified. I think of the early church in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4 and 5, and how one of the things that drove the religious leaders so mad in their anger and their jealousy and their frustration was what? Was because those early disciples were just propagating the name of Jesus all over the land of Israel. And they said, we keep telling you, stop spreading this man's name everywhere. <laughs> and they just kept spreading it. And you filled this whole city with this doctrine and with his name. What? But what were they doing? They just, they couldn't help talking about the name of Jesus. Because of the name of Jesus, the Bible says salvation is found in no other name because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, and, and may we, out of appreciation for Jesus and knowing the value of who Jesus is and what he does, take that to heart and say, wow, what a great agenda as a result of being so excited for who the Lord is and what he does as our kinsmen to just make the name of Jesus famous in Atlantic County, in Cape May County, and, in, and, in the, and just in, in New Jersey and in America to just make the name of Jesus popular and famous. Again, too much of Christianity today, it seems like, is making the name of Jesus' servants famous in the church. We have too much celebrityism, in my personal opinion, in the church today. And rather, it's, it's, it's about making the name of Jesus famous. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That's the name we want to make famous and put before people. Uh, he would increase, we would decrease. Verse 15, and may he, now it seems talking there of the son that's been born, may he be a restorer of life. And isn't that beautiful? As a result of a kinsman, there's restoration of life, even as Jesus becomes a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is now better to you than seven sons has borne him and Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and she became a nurse to him it seems the idea there is like she took care of him as if it was her very own child so thankful that this heir had been raised up for their family also the neighbor women gave him a name saying this is a son born to Naomi and they called his name Obed and notice this watch this verse 17 he is the father of Jesse Obed became the father of Jesse and Jesse was the father of David 
We then read this genealogy as the book closes. And this was one of the reasons Ruth was given to track the genealogical line of the Messiah, the son of David, so that they could validate that. Verse 18, now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez got Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. There's our kinsman redeemer, our character and hero of the story. Boaz and Ruth, who was their child? Obed. Two generations away from Obed begets Jesse and Jesse is the father of David. So a thousand years later in that same city of Bethlehem, a great king is born as the result of this divine union that God brings together of this Moabite woman and this heroic man Boaz who in love fulfills his role as the kinsman redeemer and they become the grandparents, it says here, of King David. Now, ultimately, that beautiful thing happens and then a thousand years later, it said in Bethlehem, as a result of David's lineage, ultimately comes the son of David, Jesus himself, born as the result of this. Matthew chapter one records the genealogy of Jesus, the historical genealogy, and it records Ruth in that genealogy. Amazing to see that God allows for this Moabite pagan woman with a very shady past, came from a heathen culture, to be included in the messianic line of his son. Just showing us again, from God's perspective, everything in the line of Jesus in many ways, because we become a part of that line spiritually, like Ruth, like others in that Tamar, in that, we have shady pasts. We really brought nothing of really any benefit to the table, but it was all the redemptive, restorative, gracious work of the Lord that he had grace upon us. He reached out to us. He saved us. He's the one that restored us. And, and think of this whole story that starts out as a tragedy and no one knew that ultimately God was going to orchestrate all these things and it was going to become the result of those who would be the grandparents of King David who would ultimately then track the messianic line they become the perpetuators of the line of Jesus himself the son of David the one greater and it's amazing what God can do out of things that start out rather difficult and questionable it looks like everything had fallen apart and the reality is God said no it's not falling apart it's actually falling together <laughs> and sometimes that's how you know, oh it looks like it's all falling apart and God, it's not all falling apart it's all coming together and it just takes a little while to see that for us. And sometimes God has to take us through certain things because there are some lessons that we need to learn. And we need to see some things and learn some things. And it doesn't mean God forfeits his plan. He superintends it all and he still accomplishes what he wants. You know, what a beautiful book to show God's heart is a heart of redemption. Again, the process of setting someone free by paying a necessary price. And how Boaz becomes this picture, as I said, uh, of this illustration of Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. Now, now, four things, let me just say as we wrap up the book here, four things were required to be a kinsman redeemer, which Boaz needed to be and Jesus needed to be for us as our kinsman redeemer. First of all, a kinsman redeemer had to be a blood relative. 
That is, they had to be a part of your family. Boaz could only be a kinsman redeemer in this family because he was a blood relative of their natural family. And Jesus, though he was divine, had to choose to add to his divinity, humanity, and become a blood relative to us in order to be the one who could redeem us and the one who could save us. This is why Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, even as children have partaken of flesh and blood, Jesus shared in the same so that he then could become our kinsman redeemer. Jesus had to become a blood relative, become a man, so that he could function in this role to save us and to restore us. Galatians 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The second thing that was necessary to be a kinsman redeemer and qualify for that requirement is the kinsman had to be free themselves. In other words, they couldn't be in debt or in bondage themselves in order to release someone else from the debt or bondage and situation they were in. Boaz had to be free to do this. And in the same way, Jesus was sinless and he was free from any debt of sin. Jesus lived the sinless life, so he was indebted to nothing or no one in relation to sin, so he could therefore serve as our kinsman redeemer and actually set us free and liberate us by being made sin, the one who knew no sin, we could become the righteousness of God. Thirdly, a kinsman redeemer also had to be able to perform the process of redemption. In other words, they had to be able to fully pay the price. Boaz had the resources to be a kinsman. You had to have the resources and be able to perform the process. And he was able to do that, therefore. Ruth and Naomi were poor, right? They did not have what they needed to redeem themselves. And in the same way, spiritually, the Bible says we're all in poverty spiritually. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't purchase our own salvation. We can't pay off God we're, we're poor spiritually. We're bankrupt because we're all sinful. But what did Jesus do? He had the ability to pay the price. And he paid the ultimate price to acquire you and I as his bride, as his wife. Out of love for us, Peter tells us that though we're spiritually bankrupt, Jesus paid the adequate price. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received from the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And fourthly and finally, a kinsman not only had to be able to pay the price, but as you see with the story of Boaz, a kinsman redeemer actually had to be willing. Remember the first man? He could have been the kinsman, but he wasn't willing. He didn't want to. So the kinsman had to be willing to actually redeem. They had to be willing to make the sacrifice personally and to pay the price and to enter into the process of redemption. And in the same way, Boaz was willing to do this for Ruth despite the personal cost and because of his love for her, Jesus willingly became you and I's kinsman redeemer because of his love for you. It tells us in John chapter 10 that Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. So Jesus says, what I did 
Nobody twisted my arm. I didn't do it because I had to do it. I did it because I wanted to do it. Because you're valuable to me. And I love you more than you could ever love me. And because I love you so much, I'm willing to redeem you. And how wonderful to realize that Jesus willingly did what he did for us. And the willingness of Boaz is the same willingness of Jesus. It boils down to one word, love. Love. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5 before we enter back into worship. I just want to show you one scripture in Revelation 5 as we enter into worship tonight to show you how redemption ties into really what we will find as a purpose and a reason for worshiping throughout all of eternity. All of eternity. It says in Revelation chapter 5, as the scene in heaven, the eternal dimension is there, that they look to the throne of God and they see someone holding a scroll. And that scroll is the title deed of the earth that man forfeited when he failed in the Garden of Eden. And there's a great concern in heaven because no one in heaven or earth was able to open the scroll or look at it. And they began to weep because nobody was worthy to do what needed to be done. And then verse 5 of Revelation 5 says, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seals. And I looked, verse 6, And behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into the earth. And he came, this is Jesus, took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the angelic creatures, it says, and all the elders, those, the saints in heaven, fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, and golden bowls full of incense look at this which are the prayers of the saints and here's the key focusing on this and they sang a new song so this is what they're doing in heaven right now eternally what you and I are going to join someday this is what we're going to enter into as we enter into the presence of the Lord worship and singing and here's part of what they're singing pay attention so you know the words when you get to heaven because they may not have screens and God may just say, if you would have studied Revelation, you would have known the worship songs. Okay? So I want you to know them so when you get there, if somebody else does run, you can say, look, I went to a Calvary Chapel. We studied that part of the Bible. We studied that. I know the words of the songs. Stay near me. I'll help you pick them up. So here's, here's the lyric, what you're going to be singing to Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Notice, why did they find Jesus worthy? Was it, oh, well, he gave me a great life and we got a new car at this one point or everything went well or we never lost a job or we never got sick. This is, this is why you're going to look at Jesus and you're going to fall on your face and worship. You're going to say, you are worthy because you were our kinsman redeemer. You redeemed us. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, people of all nationality, nobody cares. All the difference is gone. Nobody's focused on this or focused on the other or focused on themselves. Everybody's focused on Jesus saying, your blood, you shed your blood to redeem us back to God that we might know you and we might be here in the presence of the Lord. Hey, may that motivate our hearts tonight as we turn to the Lord in worship. Let's stand. Let's pray together.